0: section one of the works of the right hon edmund burke this librivox recording is in the public domain the works of the right hon edmund burke by edmund burke part one of a letter to lord unknown shall i venture to say my lord that in our late conversation you were inclined to the party which you adopted rather by the feelings of your good nature than by the conviction of your judgment. We laid open the foundations of society, and you feared that the curiosity of the search might endanger the ruin of the whole fabric. You would readily have allowed my principle, but you dreaded the consequence, you thought, that having once entered upon these reasonings, we might be carried insensibly and irresistibly farther than at first we could have either have imagined or wished. But, for my part, my lord, I then thought, and am still of the same opinion, that error and not-truth of any kind is dangerous, that ill conclusions can only flow from false propositions, and that, to know whether any proposition to be true or false, it is a preposterous method to examine it by its apparent consequences there were the reasons which induced me to go so far into that inquiry and they are the reasons which direct me in all my inquiries i had indeed often reflected on that subject before i could prevail on myself to communicate my reflections to anybody they were generally melancholy enough as those usually are which carry us beyond the mere surface of things and which were undoubtedly make the lives of all thinking men extremely miserable, if the same philosophy which caused the grief did not at the same time administer the comfort. On considering political societies, their origin, their constitution, and their effects, I have sometimes been in a good deal more than doubt whether the Creator did ever really intend man for a state of happiness he has mixed in his cup a number of natural evils in spite of the boast of stoicism they are evils and every endeavour which the art and policy of mankind has used from the beginning of the world to this day in order to alleviate or cure them has only served to introduce new mischiefs or to aggravate and inflame the old besides this The mind of man itself is too active and restless a principle ever to settle on the true point of quiet. It discovers every day some craving want in a body, which really wants but little. Every day invents some new artificial rule to guide that nature which, if left to itself, were the best and surest guide it finds out imaginary beings prescribing imaginary laws and then it raises imaginary terrors to support a belief in the beings and an obedience to the laws many things have been said and very well undoubtedly on the subjection on which we should preserve our bodies to the government of our understanding but enough has not been said upon the restraint which bodily necessities ought to lay on the extravagant subtleties and eccentric rovings of our minds the body or as some love call it our inferior nature is wiser in its own plain way and attends its own business more directly than the mind with all its boasted subtlety, in the state of nature without question mankind was subjected to many and great inconveniences want of union want of mutual assistance want of a common arbitrator to resort to in their differences these were evils which they could not have felt pretty severely on many occasions the original children of the earth lived with their brethren of the other kinds in much equality their diet must have been confined almost wholly to the vegetable kind and the same tree which in its flourishing state produced the berries in its decay gave them an habitation the mutual desires of the sexes uniting their bodies and affections and the children which are the result of these intercourses introduced first the notion of society and taught its conveniences this society founded in natural appetites and instincts and not in any positive institution i shall call natural society thus far nature went and succeeded but man would go further the great error of our nature is not to know where to stop not to be satisfied with any reasonable acquirement not to compound with our condition, but to lose all we have gained by an insatiable pursuit after more. Man found a considerable advantage by this union of many persons to form one family. He therefore judged that he would find his account proportionally to an union of many families into one body politic and as nature has formed no bond of union to hold them together he supplied this defect by laws this is political society and hence the sources of what are usually called states civil societies or governments into some form of which more extended or restrained all mankind have gradually fallen and since it has so happened and that we owe an implicit reverence to all the institutions of our ancestors we shall consider these institutions with all that modesty with which we ought to conduct ourselves in examining a received opinion but with all that freedom and candour which we owe to truth wherever we find it or however it may contradict our own notions or oppose our own interests there is a more absurd and audacious method of reasoning avowed by some bigots and enthusiasts but through fear assented to by some wiser and better men it is this they argue against a fair discussion of popular prejudices because say they though they would be found without any reasonable support yet the discovery might be productive of the most dangerous consequences. Absurd and blasphemous notion. As if all happiness was not connected with the practice of virtue, which necessarily depends upon the knowledge of truth, that is, upon the knowledge of those unalterable relations which Providence has ordained that everything should bear to every other. These relations, which are truth itself, the foundation of virtue and consequently the only measures of happiness should be likewise the only measures by which we should direct our reasoning to these we should conform in good earnest and not think to force nature and the whole order of her system by a compliance with our pride and folly to conform to our artificial regulations it is by a conformity to this method we owe the discovery of the few truths we know and the little liberty and rational happiness we enjoy we have something fairer play than a reasoner could have expected formerly and we derive advantages from it which are very visible the fabric of superstition has in this our age and nation received much ruder shocks than it had ever felt before. And through the chinks and breaches of our prison, we see such glimmerings of light, and feel such refreshing airs of liberty, as daily rays our ardor for more. The miseries derived to mankind from superstition, under the name of religion, and of ecclesiastical tyranny, under the name of church government, have been clearly and usefully exposed we begin to think and to act from reason and from nature alone this is true of several but by far the majority is still in the same old state blindness and slavery and much is to it be feared that we should perpetually relapse whilst the real productive causes of all this superstitious folly enthusiastical nonsense and holy tyranny holds a reverend place in the estimation even of those who are otherwise enlightened. Civil government borrows a strength from ecclesiastical and artificial laws, receive a sanction from artificial revelations. The ideas of religion and government are closely connected, and whilst we receive government as a thing necessary or even useful to our well-being, we shall, in spite of us, draw in as is necessary, though undesirable consequence, an artificial religion of some kind or other. To this the vulgar will always be voluntary slaves, and even those of a rank of understanding superior will now and then involuntarily feel its influence. It is therefore of the deepest concernment to us to be set right in this point, point. And to be well satisfied whether civil government be such a protector from natural evils and such a nurse and increaser of blessings as those of warm imaginator's promise in such a discussion, far am I from proposing in the least to reflect on our most wise form of government, no more than I would in the freer parts of my philosophical writings mean to object to the piety truth and perfection of our most excellent church both i am sensible have their foundations on a rock no discovery of truth can prejudice them on the contrary the more closely the origin of religion and government is examined the more clearly their excellences must appear they come purified from the fire my business is not with them having entered a protest against all objections from these quarters i may the more freely inquire from history and experience how far policy has contributed in all times to alleviate those evils which providence that perhaps has designed us for a state of imperfection has imposed how far our physical skill has cured our constitutional disorders and whether it may not have introduced new ones curable perhaps by no skill in looking over any state to form a judgment on it it presents itself in two lights the external and the internal the first that relation which it bears in point of friendship or enmity to other states the second that relation which its component parts the governing and the governed bear to each other the first part of the external views of all states their relation as friends makes so trifling a figure in history that i am very sorry to say it affords me but little matter on which to expatiate the good offices done by one nation to its neighbor a footnote had his lordship lived to our days to have seen the noble relief given by this nation to the distressed portuguese he had perhaps owned this part of his argument a little weakened but we do not think ourselves entitled to alter his lordship's words but that we are bound to follow him exactly and of footnote the support given in public distress the relief afforded in general calamity the protection granted in emergent danger the mutual return of kindness and civility would afford a very ample and very pleasing subject for history. But, alas, all the history of all times concerning all nations does not afford matter enough to fill ten pages, though it should be spun out by the wire-drawing amplifications of a Guicciardini himself. The glaring side is that of enmity. War is the matter which fills all history. And consequently the only or almost the only view in which we can see the external of political society is in a hostile shape and the only actions to which we have always seen and still see all of them intent are such as tend to the destruction of one another war says much evil ought to be the only study of a prince and by a prince he means every sort of state, however constituted. He ought, says this great political doctor, to consider peace only as a breathing time, which gives him leisure to contrive and furnishes ability to execute military plans. A meditation on the conduct of political societies made old Hobbes imagine that war was the state of nature. And truly, if a man judged of the individuals of a race by their conduct when united and in packed into nations and kingdoms, he might imagine that every sort of virtue was unnatural and foreign to the mind of man. The first accounts we have of mankind are but so many accounts of their butcheries; all empires have been commenced in blood, and In those early periods, when the race of mankind began first to form themselves into parties and combinations, the first effect of the combination, and indeed the end for which it seems purposely formed and best calculated, was their mutual destruction. All ancient history is dark and uncertain. One thing, however, is clear. There were conquerors and conquests in those days and, consequently, all that devastation by which they are formed, and all that oppression by which they are maintained. We know little of Sesostris, but that he led out of Egypt an army of above 700,000 men, that he overran the Mediterranean coast as far as Colchis, that in some places he met but little resistance, and of course shed not a great deal of blood but that he found in others a people who knew the value of their liberties and sold them dear whoever considers the army this conqueror headed the space he traversed and the opposition he frequently met with the natural accidents of sickness and the dearth and badness of provision to which he must have been subject in the variety of climates and countries his march lay, though, if he knows anything, he must know that even the conqueror's army must have suffered greatly, and that of this immense number, but a very small part, could have returned to enjoy the plunder accumulated by the lives of so many of their companions, and the devastation of so considerable a part of the world. Considering, I say, the vast army headed by this conqueror, whose unwieldy weight was almost alone sufficient to wear down its strength it will be far from excess to suppose that one-half was lost in the expedition if this was the state of victories and from the circumstances it must have been this at least the vanquished must have had a much heavier loss as the greatest slaughter is always in the flight and great carnage did in those times and countries ever attend the first rage of conquest it will therefore be very reasonable to allow their account as much as added to the losses of the conqueror may amount to a million of deaths and then we shall see this conqueror the oldest we have on the records of history though as we have observed before the chronology of these remote times is extremely uncertain opening the scene by a destruction of at least one million of his species, unprovoked by his ambition, without any motives but pride, cruelty, and madness, and without any benefit for himself. For Justin expressly tells us he did not maintain his conquests, but solely to make so many people in so distant countries feel experimentally how severe a scourge Providence intends for the human race when he gives one man the power over many, and arms his naturally impotent and feeble rage with the hands of millions, who know no common principle of action, but a blind obedience to the passions of the ruler. The next personage who figures in the tragedies of these ancient theatre is Semiramis, for we have no particulars of Ninnus, but that he made immense and rapid conquests which doubtless were not compassed without the usual carnage we see an army of about three millions employed by this martial queen in a war against the indians we see the indians arming a yet greater and we behold a war continued with much fury and with various success this ends in the retreat of the queen with scarce a third of the troops employed in the expedition, an expedition which, at this rate, must have caused two millions of souls on her part, and it is not unreasonable to judge that the country which was the seat of war must have been an equal sufferer. But I am content to detract from this, and to suppose that the Indians lost only half so much, and then the account stands thus, in this war alone for smyrus had other wars in this single reign and is this one spot of the globe did three millions of souls expire with all the horrid and shocking circumstances which attend all wars and in a quarrel in which none of the sufferers could have the least rational concern the babylonian assyrian midian and persian monarchies must have poured out seas of blood in their formation and in their destruction the armies and fleets of xerxes their numbers their glorious stand made against them and the unfortunate event of all his mighty preparations are known to everybody in this expedition draining half asia of its inhabitants he led an army of about two millions to be slaughtered and wasted by a thousand fatal accidents in the same place where his predecessors had before by a similar madness consumed the flower of so many kingdoms and wasted the force of so extensive an empire it is a cheap calculation to say that the persian empire in its wars against the greeks and scythians threw away at least 4 millions of its subjects to say nothing of its other wars and the losses sustained in them these were the losses abroad but the war was brought home to them, first by Agesilas and afterwards by Alexander. I have not, in this retreat, the books necessary to make very exact calculations, nor is it necessary to give more than hints to one of your lordship's erudition. You will recollect his uninterrupted series of success. You will run over his battles." You will call to mind the carnage which he. You will give a glance at the whole, and you will agree with me, that to form this hero, no less than twelve hundred thousand lives, must have been sacrificed. But no sooner had he fallen himself a sacrifice to his vices than a thousand breaches were made, for ruin, to enter, and give the last hand to this scene of misery and destruction his kingdom was rent and divided which served to employ the more distinct parts to tear each other to pieces and breathe the whole in blood and slaughter the kings of syria and of egypt the kings of pergamus and mesodon without intermission worried each other for above two hundred years until at last a strong power arising in the west rushed in upon them and silenced their tumults by involving all the contending parties of the same destruction it is little to say that the contentions between the successors of alexander depopulated that part of the world of at least two millions the struggle between the macedonians and the greeks and before that the disputes of the greek commonwealths among themselves for unprofitable superiority form one of the bloodiest scenes in history one is astonished how such a small spot could furnish men sufficient to sacrifice to the pitiful ambition possessing five or six thousand more acres or two or three more villages yet to see the the acrimony and bitterness with which this was disputed between the Athians and the Lacedominians, what armies cut off, what fleets sunk and burnt, what a number of cities sacked, and their inhabitants slaughtered and captivated, one would be induced to believe the decision of the fate of mankind, at least, depended upon it. But those disputes ended, as all such have ever done, and ever will do in a real weakness of all parties a momentary shadow and dream of power in some one and the subjection of all to the yoke of a stranger who knows how to profit of their division this at least was the case of the greeks and surely from the earliest accounts of them to their absorption into the roman empire we cannot judge that their intense division and their foreign wars consumed less than three millions of their inhabitants. What an Elisadama! What a field of blood Sicily has been in ancient times, whilst the mode of its government was controverted between the republican and tyrannical parties, and the possession struggled for by the natives, the Greeks, the Carthagians, and the Romans, your lordship will easily recollect. You will remember the total destruction of such bodies as an army of three hundred thousand men. You will find every page of its history dyed in blood, and blotted and confounded by tumults, rebellions, massacres, assassinations, proscriptions, and a series of horror beyond the histories, perhaps, of any other nation in the world, though. The histories of all nations are made up of similar matter. I once more excuse myself in point of exactness for want of books, but I shall estimate the slaughters in this island butter at two millions, which your lordship will find much short of the realty. Let us pass by the wars and the consequences of them, which wasted Grecia Magna before the Roman power prevailed in that part of Italy. They are, perhaps, exaggerated, therefore I shall only rate them at one million. Let us hasten to open that scene which establishes the Roman Empire and forms the grand catastrophe of the ancient drama. This empire, whilst in its infancy, began by an effusion of human blood scarcely credible. The neighboring little states teemed for new destruction. The Sibins... The Samnites, the Equi, the Volski, the Hetruines, were broken by a series of slaughters which had no interruption for some hundreds of years, slaughters which upon all sides consumed more than two billions of the wretched people. The Gauls, rushing into Italy about this time, had the total destruction of their own armies to lose of the ancient inhabitants in short it were hardly possible to conceive a more horrid and bloody picture if that the punic wars that ensued soon after did not present one that far exceeds it here we find that climax of devastation and ruin which seemed to shake the whole earth the extent of this war which vexed so many nations and both elements and the havoc of human species caused in both, really astonishes beyond expression. When it is nakedly considered, and those matters which are apt to divert our attention from it, the characters, actions, and designs of the persons concerned, are not taken into the account. These words, I mean those called the Punic Wars, could not have stood the human race in less than three millions of the species and yet this forms but a part only and a very small part of the havoc caused by the roman ambition the war with medridis was very less bloody that prince cut off at one stroke one hundred fifty thousand romans by massacre and that war Scylla, destroyed 300,000 men at Tronia. He defeated Mithridates' army under Daryllus, and slew 300,000. This great and unfortunate prince lost another 300,000 before Scyzikum. In the course of the war, he had innumerable other losses, and having many intervals of success, He revenged them severely. He was at last totally overthrown, and he crushed to pieces the king of Armenia, his ally by the greatness of his ruin. All who had connections with him shared the same fate. The merciless genius of Scylla had its full scope, and the streets of Athens were not the only ones which ran with blood at this period the sword glutted with foreign slaughter turned its edge upon the bowels of the roman republic itself and prevented a scene of cruelties and treasons enough almost to obliterate the memory of all the external devastations I intended, my lord, to have proceeded in a short of method in estimating the numbers of mankind cut off in these wars which we have on record, but I am obliged to alter my design. Such a traditional uniformity of havoc and murder would disgust your lordship as much as it would me, and I confess I already feel my eyes ache by keeping them so long intent on so bloody a prospect." I shall observe little on the Serval, the Social, the Gallic, and Spanish wars, nor upon those with Jugurtha, nor Antiochus, nor many others equally important, and carried on with equal fury. The butcheries of Julius Caesar alone are calculated by somebody else. The numbers he has been the means of destroying have been reckoned, at one million and two hundred thousand but to give your lordship an idea that may serve as a standard by which to measure in some degree the others you will turn your eyes on judea a very inconsiderable spot of the earth in itself though ennobled by the singular events which had their rise in that country this spot happened it matters not here by what means to become at several times extremely populous, and to supply men for slaughters scarcely credible, if other well-known and well-artested ones had not given them a color. The first settling of the Jews here was attended by an almost entire extirpation of all the former inhabitants, their own civil wars, and those with their Petty neighbours consumed vast multitudes almost every year for several centuries, and the irruptions of the kings of Babylon and Assyria immense ravages. Yet we have their history but partially in an indistinct, confused manner, so that I shall only throw the strong point of light upon that part which coincides with Roman history, and of that part only on the point of time when they received the great and final stroke which made them no more a nation, a stroke which is allowed to have cut off little less than two millions of that people. I say nothing of the loppings made from that stalk whilst it stood, nor from the suckers that grew out of the old root ever since. But if, in this inconsiderable part of the globe such a carnage has been made in two or three short reigns and that this great carnage great as it is makes but a minute part of what the historians of that people inform us they suffered what shall we judge of countries more extended and which have waged wars by far more considerable instances of this sort compose the uniform of history but there have been periods when no less than universal destruction to the race of mankind seems to have been threatened. Such was that when the Goths, the Vandals, and the Huns poured into Gaul, Italy, Spain, Greece, and Africa, carrying destruction before them as they advanced, and leaving horrid deserts every way behind them. Vastum ubiquit silentium secrticalis Fumantia tecta, Nemo Exploratorbis, Obvious, it is what Tectius calls fasces Victoriae. It is always so, but was here empathetically so. From the north proceeded the swarms of Goths, Vandals, Huns, us Trogoths, who ran towards the south into africa itself which it is all to the north had done about this time another torrent of barbarians animated by the same fury and encouraged by the same success poured out of the south and ravaged all to the northeast and west to the remotest parts of persia on one hand and to the banks of the loire or father On the other destroying all the proud and curious monuments of human art that not even the memory might seem to survive of the former inhabitants but what has done since and what will continue to be done whilst the same inducements to war continue i shall not dwell upon i shall only in one word mention the horrid effects of bigotry and avarice and the conquest of spanish america a conquest on a low estimation effected by the murder of ten millions of the species i shall draw to a conclusion of this part by making a general calculation of the whole i think i have actually mentioned above thirty-six millions i have not particularized any more i don't pretend to exactness therefore for the sake of a general view i shall lay together all those actually slain in battles or have perished in a no less miserable manner by the other destructive consequences of war at the beginning of the world to this day in the four parts of it at a thousand times as much no exaggerated calculation allowing for time and extent we have not perhaps spoke of the five hundredth part i am sure I have not of what is actually ascertained in history, but how much of these butcheries are only expressed in generals, what part of time history has never reached, and what vast spaces of the habitable globe it has not embraced. I need not mention to your lordship, I need not enlarge on those torrents of silent and inglorious blood which have glutted the thirsty sands of Africa, or discoloured the polar snow or fed the savage forests of america for so many ages of continual war shall i to justify my calculations from the charge of extravagance add to the account those skirmishes which happen in all wars without being singly of sufficient dignity and mischief to merit a place in history but which by their frequency compensate far for this comparative innocence shall i inflame the account by those general massacres which have devoured whole cities and nations those wasting pestilences those consuming famines and all those furies that allow in the train of war i have no need to exaggerate and i have purposely avoided a pride of eloquence on this occasion i should despise it upon any occasion else in mentioning these slaughters it is obvious how much the whole might be heightened by an affecting description of the horrors that attend the wasting of kingdoms and sacking of cities but i do not write to the vulgar nor to that which only governs the vulgar their passions I go upon a naked and moderate calculation, just enough, without a pedantical exactness, to give your lordship some feeling of the effects of political society. I charge the whole of these effects on political society. I avow the charge, and I shall presently make it good to your lordship's satisfaction. The numbers I particularized are about thirty-six millions besides those killed in battles I have said not something not half what the matter would have justified but something I have said concerning the consequences of war even more dreadful than the monstrous carnage itself which shocks our humanity and almost staggers our belief so that allowing me in my exuberance one way for my deficiencies and the other, you will find me not unreasonable. I think the numbers of men now upon earth are computed at five hundred millions at the most. Here, the slaughter of mankind on what you will call a small calculation amounts to upwards of seventy times the number of souls this day on the globe, a point which may furnish matter of reflection to one less inclined to draw consequences than your lordship. I come now to show that political society is justly chargeable with much the greatest part of this destruction of the species, to give the fairest play to every side of the question. I will own that there is a haughtiness and fierceness in human nature, which will cause innumerable broils. Place men, in what situation you please, by owning this. I still insist in charging it to political regulations that these broils are so frequent, so cruel, and attended with consequences so deplorable. In a state of nature, it had been impossible to find a number of men, sufficient for such slaughters agreed in the same bloody purpose, or allowing that they might have come to such an agreement, an impossible supposition, it the means that simple nature has supplied them with, are by no means adequate to such an end. Many scratches, many bruises undoubtedly would be received upon all hands, but only a few, a very few deaths society and politics which have given us these destructive views have given us also the means of satisfying them from the earliest dawnings of policy to this day the invention of men has been sharpening and improving the mystery of murder from the first rude essays of clubs and stones to the present perfection of gunnery tannering, bombarding, mining, and all those species of artificial, learned, and refined cruelty, in which we are now so expert, and which make a principal part of what politicians have taught us to believe in our principal glory. How far mere nature would have carried us! We may judge by the example of those animals who still follow her laws, and even of those to whom she has given dispositions more fierce and arms more terrible than ever she intended we should use it is an incontestable truth that there is more havoc made in one year by men of men than there has been made by all the lions tigers panthers ounces leopards hyenas rhinoceroses elephants bears and wolves upon their several species since the beginning of the world though these agree ill enough to with each other, and have a much greater proportion of rage and fury in their composition than we have. But with respect to you, ye legislators, ye civilizers of mankind, ye orifices, museses, Minoses, solons, theseuses, lycurguses, numas, With respect to you be it spoken your regulations have done more mischief in cold blood than all the rage of the fiercest animals and their greatest terrors or furies has ever done or ever could do. These evils are not accidental. Whoever will take the pains to consider the nature of society will find that they result directly from its constitution, for as subordination, or in other words, the reciprocation of tyranny and slavery is requisite to support these societies the interest the ambition the malice or the revenge nay even the whim and caprice of one ruling man among them is enough to arm all the rest without any private views of their own to the worst and blackest purposes and what is at once lamentable and ridiculous these wretches engage under those banners with a fury greater than if they were animated by revenge for their own proper wrongs it is no less worth observing that this artificial division of mankind into separate societies is a perpetual source in itself of hatred and dissension among them the names which distinguish them are enough to blow up hatred and rage examine history consult present experience and you will find that far the greater part of the quarrels between several nations had scarce any other occasion than that these nations were different combinations of people, and called by different names. To an Englishman, the name of a Frenchman, a Spaniard and Italian, much more a Turk or a Tartar, raises, of course, ideas of hatred and contempt, if you would inspire the compatriot of ours with pity or regard for one of these would you not hide that distinction you would not pray him to compassionate the poor frenchman or the unhappy german far from it you would speak of him as a foreigner an accident to which all are liable you would represent him as a man one partaking with us of the same common nature and subject to the same law there is something too averse from our nature in these artificial political distinctions that we need no other trumpet to kindle us to war and destruction but there is something so benign and healing in the general voice of humanity that may all our regulations to prevent it the simple name of man applied properly never fails to work a salutary effect end of part one of a letter to lord unknown read by elijah fisher